Welcome, everyone. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Eric Jorgensen. I'm the founder of Special Needs Navigator. I started Special Needs Navigator to connect families with the benefits, resources, and services they may not be aware of. Today, I'm interviewing Ashley Van Cleef. She's a special education attorney located in Maryland. Her practice is focused solely on special education. I would consider her a great resource, especially for those of you that live in Maryland. Prior to opening her practice as an attorney, she served students with disabilities as a special education teacher, school and state level administrator, and a school attorney. So she's got an abundance of knowledge and background, especially serving as a staff attorney for Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, as well as supervisor and 504 coordinator for the Montgomery County Public School Resolution Compliance Unit. These experiences and this knowledge means that she's built not only a lot of knowledge, but also a very big network of individuals that she can collaborate with. And in having that background, in my personal and professional opinion, allows her to be able to speak the language, but also put the people on the other side of the table a little bit more at ease that this isn't an attorney who's coming after them. Ashley has walked in their shoes. They understand that she knows where they're coming from. And I believe that they understand Ashley is really just trying to do what's best for the parent without any gotchas. So that's my introduction of Ashley. I'm going to let Ashley tell you a little bit more about her personal background, and then we're going to get dive into the presentation. Ashley, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for agreeing. Would you mind giving the audience just a brief background? We were talking before we started recording that you just opened a new storefront in Frederick and big things going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I went out on my own a little over a year ago, but we opened our office in March. And with COVID hitting, we didn't necessarily do much in that regard, except for continue to be an essential business and have clients come in here. But with starting to lighten up on some of the restrictions, we were excited to do an open house. We had clients and community members, some of our representatives, representative from the mayor's office all come out. We did an official ribbon cutting. So it was exciting to get to see a lot of the kids that I've represented for a number of years to see them in person since we really haven't seen people in person for a while and to get to hear from their families as to where they are, you know, kind of in their walk and where things are with school. And so it was wonderful. We really got to see a lot of the community, got to meet some people that didn't know we existed and got to share more information about our practice. So it was a wonderful open house and we were thrilled to get to see so many people who came out and saw our space. Our space is different. The Frederick News Post actually called it today a vintage and charming. I didn't want it to be a space that was stuffy and looked like a lawyer's office. So (laughs) education law is kind of a different kind of practice. And so I wanted my office to look different. It's very cozy. It's welcoming. It's certainly what we hope families will come in and kind of feel at ease because of that, as they said, vintage and charm, because it's stressful for a parent to have a kid who needs something or feels like their kid's not getting something that they need. So I like to think I'm a different kind of practice and it's certainly a different kind of office. I mean, if we're looking at your office right now, I can tell you just having flowers and some artwork up, that's not your standard cookie cutter corporate, right? Exactly. We have a fireplace that you can't see. That's one of the first things whenever you walk in the door and, you know, couch and chairs that are just, it's different. It feels more like home than it does an office. Love it. Love it. So today we're going to Talk a little bit more about what a special education attorney does, how they work with advocates. That's a question I get a lot is, should I hire an attorney? Should I hire an advocate? What's the difference? When you need one, I think 
I did read your blog and I would encourage other people going to your website to check out the blog that you wrote about when you need one. I mean, TLDR is if you're asking, you probably already do, right? Okay. And then some common mistakes families make. So let's get started right away with diving into what is a special education attorney and what do they do? Sure. So most people will say, I never knew a special education attorney existed because it's such a small niche area and there's so few of us that practice in this area of law. So my days are never the same. I can attend IEP meetings. I can be writing a state complaint. I can be participating in a mediation or doing a hearing. Hopefully there's not too many of the hearings. We always want to try to collaborate and not end up in that position. But it is just helping parents navigate the educational systems, whether that's a 504 plan or an individualized education program. But they're faced with these situations where they've got kids that have a diagnosis or they know something's not quite going right. They are going into these meetings with school teams where they're talking another language. The education jargon just goes on and on. And we have more acronyms than we know what to do with. And then we start to overlap our acronyms with more acronyms. And so they're sitting there saying, I have no idea what they're saying, but I hope that's what my kid needs. I don't understand all this paperwork and I'm just hoping for the best. And I always make an analogy of going in and doing a mortgage. I don't know what that mortgage paperwork means, but I know there's a whole lot of papers that I have to sign. I don't know what any of the language is. And I just hope that I come out of that, that I've done everything the way I'm supposed to. Well, parents go into the IEP process feeling the same way. So as a special education attorney, my role is just to help them to navigate that, to help them understand what those forms and what those processes mean. And oftentimes parents end up with an attorney because it's not gone well, or they feel like their child's not making progress. And so there's some lack of trust with the school system. So I can be that neutral party who can say, here's what I think about that. And having been a special education teacher too, and continuing my training and trying to be up on the educational side and not just the legal side, I help them to navigate, here's what your child needs from an educational standpoint. I can read the test scores and say, well, this is what this really means. And they go, oh, I never understood that, or I didn't know what that meant. And then we can take it the next step and say, okay, well, now what does this mean for them legally? Is there you know, a right to compensatory educational services or does your child need another placement? Maybe we need to pursue you know, through some kind of a dispute resolution mechanism. I like to think of myself as someone who helps them understand the process someone who helps them engage in the process and the IEP meetings, helps them to strategize as to what do they need to do in the process to be successful or to have a successful outcome for their child. And so many times what they don't teach you in law school is that you also end up, and I don't want to say therapist because I don't think that's the accurate term, but you spend a lot of time talking with families and really helping them to understand what's going on, but then to get to know them. And if they're stressed and anxious about a meeting, helping them to see, you know, what are some different ways that that could go. So if you think about a special education attorney, it's so many different things. I like to think that I just, I work alongside the families and with the school systems to try to make sure we get the result that the student needs and either get things back on track or to maybe move them onto a different track that's going to help that child in a different way. I really, really like that description you gave, Ashley, because it really painted a picture to me of a very collaborative relationship between you, the parents, and the members of the IEP team. And I'm not saying you can't get your heckles up if you have to, but you know, like we talked before is if you do that, at some point, you're really not helping anybody because you're going to have to go back and see the same people for another family that you're helping, right? So I think the other question that I would ask as a parent would be, 
if I bring an attorney in to an IEP meeting, are the IEP members, are they going to get defensive? Is it going to change how the whole dynamic? I mean, am I doing something wrong by bringing an attorney in? I mean, these are things I think I would be asking as a parent. I've had a number of parents ask that. So I think you're right on there. And sometimes, anytime a family says that they're bringing an attorney to a meeting, if somebody at that table has a negative experience in the past with an attorney, then they're going to think negatively. I thankfully have had some very wonderful experiences where I've had school folks who have recommended me to families because I've been at the IEP table with them and they've had a family member or a friend who's struggling with something in the school system. And because they've been on the other side of the table with me, they've recommended me, which I think is one of the greatest compliments that I can get. You know, I have to tell parents, it could be negative for someone because of their past experiences. It could be a positive because maybe they've worked with me before and, you know, I was really able to help with the process. I'm not going to know. I can usually tell them if it's a specific school team that I've worked with before, if I think it's going to be positive or not. But it's always a fear anytime you're engaging in some kind of a situation because, you know, anybody could have had any kind of past experience that they bring into them that'll change their perception of what they're going to deal with. But I always try to make sure that my experiences in working with school teams are collaborative in every way that they can be so that hopefully that will be their feeling if they see my name coming across the table. When I worked for the school systems, you know, there were certain names that you saw that were going to attend the meeting and you're like, okay, great. You know, I really like to work with that attorney. Or there were certain names that came across and you're like, oh, you know, not that person again. They're difficult to deal with. I want to be that name that people get from a school side that they're like, okay, yeah, great. She's great to work with. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's not personal. It shouldn't ever be allowed to be construed as personal. It's always, we're here for what's good for the good of the student. Before we move into how you work with advocates, when does a family need to tell the IEP team that they're bringing an attorney? Always in advance. So typically I send in a letter of representation and I notify the school district in advance and I say, hey, I'm going to be in attendance. Some school systems like to also have their attorney attend if a parent is bringing an attorney. And so they need time to make sure that they've got somebody available. If it's not an attorney that they're bringing, they'll often bring somebody from central office to help support that school team. So they need time to make sure that person is available. So it's always appropriate to give notice. And so we want to make sure that we do that in enough time that they don't end up having to cancel that meeting and reschedule because everybody's schedules are busy these days. And you know, if you do it the day before, most likely the school system is going to have to reschedule. I would think just people being people, and then maybe I'm projecting here, but if you give people notice like the day before, there's almost, again, I could be projecting, There's but there's almost a feeling of, okay, how long have you known and why are you waiting till now, right? I mean, what are you trying to sneak in or, and I'm not saying people do that. I just, I know in my history, when I would have somebody do something at last minute for a meeting, it was usually because they were trying to be sneaky. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. It's kind of like that gotcha you said earlier. It's not setting the stage for that relationship in a good way. If you come across with a a last minute notice of an attorney, it doesn't feel good. (laughs) So, I mean, all attorneys are advocates. I understand that. I think we've talked about that offline. You're not doing the same role as a special education advocate, right? I mean, is there a time when you would be working with an advocate or maybe you would refer to an advocate instead? How does that dynamic work? Yeah, I have so many parents who ask that, especially because I could very well play both roles 
in a number of ways because I'm, you know, also a special education teacher and I can kind of serve as that educational consultant type of a role when I meet with parents and look through their paperwork. I can do that part of it, but I need educational advocates or consultants whenever we're not sure what's going on in the classroom and maybe we need a classroom observation to have a better understanding of exactly what's happening. That's not something I'm going to go in and do. I do love to do it. And I've had a couple of counties have said, hey, can you come in and see what's going on here? I think it'll help you participate in this meeting. And I've always taken advantage of that opportunity. But the majority of the time, we do need an advocate or a consultant, you know, just depending upon which term you're using to do those classroom observations or to update some assessments if we're looking at, you know, we need some additional data. And then sometimes, you know, parents will want to proceed with an advocate or a consultant rather than use an attorney. And certainly, you know, that is absolutely fine. You know, I always tell parents, you need to work with who you feel most comfortable with in that process and who, you know, you feel like is going to to work with you. Sometimes they'll want to work with an advocate or a consultant and then bring me in, you know, towards the end to look at their case if it hasn't worked out well and they're thinking they need to go a different direction. Not necessarily with that consultant, but, you know, a, a consultant or an advocate can only take things so far I wouldn't advise that they, you know, do a due process hearing just because it is very much so a legal proceeding and you've got a lot of legal rules to follow. And it's a very tricky process to try to do without having that training. You know, so if a consultant has gotten a case to a certain point where they feel like that's the only other option, certainly that's a time to make that switch over to an attorney or to then have us both work in collaboration. I don't like to end up in a due process hearing. It's never good for anyone because you've got a judge that's going to make the decision and it's kind of out of your hands what you get to say at that point in time. And parents are up to the judge's discretion whether they are going to give them you know, what they think their child needs. But you do have to have educational experts if you engage in a due process hearing. And certainly that's always a time when I say, you know, we've got to have experts. That's the only way that you can proceed in a legal arena is to have experts who put on your case. I can't be the attorney and the expert. So you know, I need somebody else to fulfill that role. Like, you know, it'd be impossible to to be the the witness and be the attorney. So there's definitely times when I think that it's really important to bring a consultant or an advocate to be involved in always classroom observations. If there's going to be informal assessments or even formal assessments, and then if we're going to need experts, that's a, a time that I'm always saying to families, okay, we need to get somebody else involved here so that we can make sure we have the other components that we need to look at this case more fully. But I do like the fact that if I can serve in both roles for families and they don't need to hire both, that that gives them a good option. Or if they want to you know, go with a consultant before they come over to me, then that's great too. Okay. I would think the big thing is don't let cost be your driving fact. And I know we're talking you specifically, but I mean, this is across all 50 states. I mean, you practice in Maryland, but no matter where you are, if you're looking at considering an advocate or a consultant versus an attorney, the deciding factor shouldn't be which is going to save you the bigger buck. What I'm hearing from you, Ashley, is does there need to be classroom observation? Do you have any data about the classroom? Because you may say, well, I don't know if there needs to be any classroom observation. Well, take a step back from there is do you have any information about what's going on in the classroom? If the answer is no, probably go with a consultant first or at least talk to an attorney and say, what do you need if this is what we're considering? Is that a pretty good summation? Yeah, it is. You know, certainly I always tell parents, come in for a consult. Let me tell you what I think about your case. I'll certainly do a full analysis. And if I see that there's something else that you need, or if I see there's somebody else you could work with before you need to work with me, I'm going to let you know that. Consultants and advocates 
are absolutely wonderful. And, and I know so many wonderful ones that I work with, but they don't necessarily have that legal training. Some of them do, but they don't necessarily have that. And if you can get kind of that focus from an attorney and then kind of have a game plan, you won't necessarily make some of the mistakes that I've seen parents make along the way that then end up with me. And I'm like, okay, well, now we still need to go back and we need to get a classroom observation. We do need to understand what's going on in the classroom. So it is advantageous to not, like you said, let cost be your driving factor. But unfortunately, so many times that is what parents have to think about. And so we can always come up with a plan where you know, an advocate or a consultant is going to do this and I'm going to do this and kind of divide up that work to help them on that cost side. Right. Again, I don't want to beat the cost drum too hard, but at the end of the day, if this is something you're really concerned about for your child and you don't take the right steps from the beginning, it's only going to get more expensive. I think in your blog, you had an analogy to lifting up to replace an air filter. If you try to replace the filter on your own, you could do a lot more damage. So it's just, you know, at the end of the day, professionals have jobs for a reason. I don't think many of us are out, I don't want to say none, but I don't think many of us are out there to try to get one over on people. You know, certainly there are probably going to be those that you may have had a bad experience or you, you see the negatives. That's not the norm, right? The norm is people like you and I, Ashley, who want to do right by people. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're doing a job just like everybody else's. We just have a little more specialized training. Yeah, absolutely. And I do remember that analogy from my blog. You know, there's so many times that if I had just paid the money that I thought, you know, was too much in the beginning, you know, it would have cost me less in the long run. And, and I see that so many times where parents have kind of spun their wheels and going in different directions and spent, you know, funds that they didn't have to spend. That if maybe if we'd stayed a little focused and had a better kind of plan from the beginning, it would have cost them less in the long run. Yeah. And, and I have, you know, a similar analogy for medical is I ignored something for too long and it turned out to be cancer and I got to have half my face removed because I was worried about time. Like, it's, you know, I don't want to spend the time to see a doctor and make an appointment and go all the way to the doctor, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's the same deal. It's ignoring something small or trying to take the easy way, cheap way, fill in your blank way out. The potential is there for it to be much, much worse. So do it right the first time pay a little bit more, invest that money in your child's education, in your child's future. And I think you're going to be happier for it. Like you said, if parents kind of jump on this when it is a small thing, it's a lot easier to fix than when it becomes a big thing. And it's a lot less expensive to fix when it's a little issue. And so if, if parents are wondering whether they need a special education attorney, they're already at the point that they probably need to at least chat with somebody and, and get an idea of what's going on and what their options are. Which is a good segue, right? Do you need do you need one? <laughs> and I think we've talked a lot about this, about why you need one. I think, I don't know that I want to beat a dead horse or get people rolling their eyes at me, but I just think it's so important to understand, you know, special education law is a very specialized portion of the law. Like you mentioned earlier, Ashley, it's a niche. It's a very, very narrow, small niche. Maybe it's getting more attention right now because of COVID and all the online learning. But it's not something that I would feel comfortable going to an attorney that says, oh, we do bankruptcies. We do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wouldn't either. You know, I see attorneys that are able to be kind of a jack of all trades and practice in a lot of different areas. There's no way that I feel like I could do that education law piece well and do other areas of law. I mean, there's so much to stay up on just from an educational standpoint. So. 
never mind just the legal case law and analysis that we need to stay up on. There is so much just educationally as educational research is changing and different strategies and approaches are changing that I feel like it's important to stay not just up on and know about, but to also be trained in. I can't imagine trying to, like you said, do bankruptcy or something or even family law, you know, anything else in addition to what I do right now. I don't think that I would do clients justice. And I certainly wouldn't feel like I was zealously representing them and having the knowledge base that I needed if I did any other area of law. And if I understand correctly, Ashley, every county is a little bit different too, right? I mean, at least I know when I moved from Montgomery County to Frederick County, things were different with my son's schools. I can't think that that's going to be any different across state lines. I think other states, their cities or townships or boroughs, they're all going to have their own little flavor, right? They are. And that's what's so extremely interesting. So, you know, you think about an individualized education program, it's an IEP. It has the same federal requirements in every state, but every state can then also write their regulations. And those regulations can be a little bit different based upon the federal regs. So when I practice in West Virginia, the IEP looks very different than when I practice in Virginia or if I practice in Maryland and even in Pennsylvania. They look different. They have the same legal requirements, but you have to know how to read them. And then you have to know the nuances for that state. So for instance, in Virginia, they have a piece where parents have to consent at each and every IEP meeting. And if they don't consent, then the IEP continues to be a stay put IEP. We don't have that in Maryland. And so if you don't understand that nuance, you could be very confused and it could be very difficult for that family in that process to not understand that. So it is the same federal law, but every single state has their own take. And then every county, at least in Maryland, can elect to use their own online IEP forms or they can use the state forms, which can cause even more confusion just because the forms are going to look different and they'll have then their own policies and procedures within that jurisdiction as to different nuances that, again, make it different, even though the same premise or the same you know backbone is there, there's still different nuances that it's important to be aware of. And then not just from that legal standpoint, I think it's important to be aware of what's going on in that county. So what are their initiatives? Are they a county, you know, remember years ago, it was all about inclusion, and we had to have all these inclusion programs, and inclusion wasn't always, you know, what was right for everyone. Or is there an initiative that they're, you know, taking on some reading programs? And knowing what those are in that jurisdiction is just as important as understanding what their policies are, because you can help advocate for what your client needs in that particular jurisdiction. If you're familiar with what it is that, that they're taking on as initiatives and bringing into those counties and is available for students in those counties. Awesome. So what are some common mistakes that you've come across? Maybe we've already covered them all, but if you had like the top two or three things that you see parents and you're just like, I just, I would do anything if they just would not do this. Number one, (laughs) parents get to a point where they have just given up on the public school system and they decide to place their child in a private school. Well, legally, they have to give what's called a 10-day notice. That 10-day notice can either be given at an IEP meeting or it can be given 10 days before they place their child in that private school. Parents who maybe don't understand that or you know haven't read the multiple-page document of parental rights, it's very difficult to understand, will not give that notice. And they'll come in and meet with me and they'll go, okay, well, now I want the school system to pay for this private placement that I've invested my child's college fund in. And I'm asking, okay, show me the 10-day notice or show me the IEP meeting where you gave the school system notice. 
and they don't have it. They didn't know to give it. And it is extremely frustrating for parents to say, well, it's not an absolute deal breaker, but now a judge can reduce any kind of award because you weren't open and honest with the school system. You didn't give them an opportunity to say, okay, you're that frustrated. We could also offer this or let us go back to the drawing board and see what else we could do to provide something for your child so that we can address your concerns. And without doing that, it is very difficult to succeed in those kind of cases without giving that information to the school system. So that's always number one. And those parents are heartbroken, you know, because they've gone and they've spent all this money on a private school and they were hoping to be able to get some kind of reimbursement from the school system. And it's a really difficult case whenever that's happened. So that's my number one. Um, <laughs> number two is, is probably whenever they've really burned that bridge with the school system, you know, for whatever reason, Either they've worked with an educational consultant or an advocate or someone who has gotten up and screamed and yelled and thrown something. And now it's trying to come in and rebuild that relationship. That would definitely be my number two. I, you know, having sat on the school side of the table, I saw that so many times where, you know, parents would be so angry or they'd bring somebody in who thought bullying was the way to go. And unfortunately, it's not in my experience. I see whenever you come in and you yell and scream at a teacher who's trying their best and you just make them feel terrible, the last thing they want to do is help you. You know, they want to shut down because, you know, now you've put them in the brainstem and they're not able to engage in the process and talk about how we can move forward collaboratively because they remember how you've hurt them and you've harmed them. And to that point too, Ashley, is even if you're right, even if that teacher is doing something wrong, the rest of the school team is going to circle their wagons because they're going to feel attacked on behalf of that teacher. I mean, I've seen that in just about every job I've been at. If you attack one person on a team, the entire team, even if you can point out what that person is doing wrong, because you attack them, they're going to circle around their teammate. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's human nature. I think that's so important to remember in any of these instances, parents are coming at this because this is their child and they love them and they're feeling that giant snowball coming behind them of what am I not doing as a parent and how am I not addressing something that they need and what else do I need to do for them? And it's just this constant weight. And then you've got the school system who's got the weight of, you know, we have so many requirements and so many IEP meetings and I have more kids on my caseload than I can probably really manage well. And so you're coming from, I only have to do what's appropriate and you're coming from, I've got to do what's best because this is my child and there's so much that they need. So you come into this situation where you're naturally, you know, in, in opposite positions, but you're trying to come together to work for what's best for the kid. And if you can't try to find a way to collaborate and you get that team on edge, it's just never going to go well from that point on. So, you know, I think if I were to say my top two, it would be the notice requirement. And then number two would just be that relationship. I always even tell my school teams that I get an opportunity to do training for where there's a lack of trust, there's a desire for control and parents will absolutely try to control the process and try to control what happens if you don't have trust with them. And and in the same way, in any other kind of relationship where that happens, it's not out of ill will or not liking that teacher. But if they don't feel like they can trust them, it's not going to be a good relationship and they're going to have a hard time working together. Yeah, I know for me, I've hired an advocate once or a consultant once when I transitioned my son from eighth grade to ninth grade because mm-hmm. I thought he should be in the diploma program. And the consultant ended up agreeing with the school. So <laughs> I didn't hire her because I wanted to 
prove my, well, I mean, part of it was prove my case, but the other part of it is I know myself. I get pretty passionate, especially if it's about my kid. And I'm a big dude, right? So getting a big dude passionate across the table from a, several women who are smaller than me is not going to, it's just not going to go well. So having the advocate, you know, who spoke for me was, for me, it was a huge help. I mean, just hiring her to be a voice, not even a voice of reason, just here's what I want to say. I'm not sure I'll be able to communicate it clearly enough because I'm going to have, like you said, emotion. Here's somebody who's not emotionally involved. You're, when they hire you, you're not emotionally involved. You know, I always tell parents I do and I care about their kids, but I can sit there without my mom hat on because I'm not their kiddo's mom. And that's what they need me for is to be that person who can think about it logically, who can think about this in the frame of mind where I'm not letting my emotions cloud my judgment. And so many times that's what I'm there for, like you said is to help them. Obviously, as an attorney in that role, you know, you have that duty to advocate for your client and what it is that your client wants. You know, so I, I think I would, you know, from an ethical standpoint, have a problem if I said something against what, what my client wants in your situation. But it is, so it it is certainly her and me. It was between her and me where she took me aside afterwards and said, you know, the school's probably, you know, you're better served listening to the school. It wasn't yeah. in the meeting. It wasn't like that. Oh, good. good. No, no, no. <laughs> I needed somebody who would call me on stuff instead of just saying, sure, anything you want, Eric. No, I need somebody to give me a little bit of pushback. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's a lot of times, you know, what we end up doing is having those conversations with clients. Like, this is probably how this is going to go. And this is probably what is appropriate for your child. I think it's so much so about relationship. And, and you know, there are those times, unfortunately, where things do end up in an adversarial situation. It's the nature of the business. I mean, as an attorney, it can end up adversarial. And that's part of why I'm there in case it does to take them through that process. And, and I have no problem doing that. I like to litigate. I don't get to do a lot of it because thankfully we work collaboratively, but you know, it is part of the job and part of the role. But the hope is always that we don't have to end up there because it's going to cost you less money. It's going to get you in a better relationship with the school team so that you can work together and really be moving forward for that child in a faster and more efficient way if we can work together. Awesome. So leaving on the last thoughts, in addition to, so we said the last two things you would want to make sure is don't have families give up, get frustrated and fail to give the 10 day notice and don't burn bridges. Again, letting that emotional lizard brain, paraphrasing what you said, but you know, letting that emotional reaction take over and, and just you say or email something that you really shouldn't and you burn a bridge. And I really like the phrase, I wrote it down, I'm going to make sure I put it in the show notes, lack of trust leads to a desire for control. I really like that quote. Is there anything else, Ashley, that you would like us to take away that we haven't talked about or anything I should have asked you that I haven't? Any last words? I think that when thinking about when do you need a special education attorney, if you're thinking that, do a consult. A consult doesn't mean you have to hire one, but at least you can get a case analysis. It can get a different point of view. So a lot of families will say, well, I talked to my friend and this is what they were able to get. Or I talked to this advocate and they were able to get that. And they may have for their child and that may have been appropriate for that child. But for your specific child, that may not be appropriate. It may not be something that would happen in your jurisdiction. And to get an attorney who practices in the area, who's familiar with what happens in those school districts and what they have available is so important early on because it's going to be that preventative measure. Most, you know, special education attorneys don't charge much for that initial consult and it is money well worth. It's kind of thinking of your air conditioning unit and getting a tune up. It's going to save you a lot of money in the long run to make sure that you go ahead and do that one proactive measure and get some additional information so that you can be active in a proactive way. 
I have some parents who every year or so come back for a follow-up consult. Just, you know, are things still looking good? Are we on the right track? Is there anything else that we should be doing? And I think it's just one of those proactive things that parents should absolutely do if they have any question about how their child is doing in school. Fantastic. Be active in a proactive way. That's another, I'm going to make sure I highlight that one. The one thing I'm not sure we mentioned that I want to make sure we mention is be sure that you get along with the attorney. There's got to be that chemistry, right? And I don't know if enough people acknowledge this, or maybe I'm just hypersensitive, but I know both professionally, I have people I like to work with. And then personally, when I'm hiring professionals, there's got to be that, I don't have to be your best friend, but I have to really at least trust you enough and not just trust you professionally, but there's also got to be that sense of, okay, you get me. Does that make sense? It does. It's like if you have a doctor with a bad bedside manner, it's hard to work with them and to know that they're there for your child if you don't feel like you have that chemistry. I think social education attorneys are the exact same way. You know, if a parent comes in and we hit it off and they're like, oh, I absolutely want to work with you. That's great. And if they're like, "Mm, well, I think I may need a second opinion. I think they should get one because, you know, not every person is going to be matched for every other person. And you need to find somebody who matches your approach and the style that you're looking for. So where my style is very collaborative, some parents may want somebody who's very adversarial and and that, you know, they would need to go to somebody who matches that personality style and that approach that they want to have taken. Otherwise, they're going to feel frustrated with the process and they're not feeling like they're going to get the outcome that they're looking for. And I like that you point that out. They, you know, be sure you know what you're looking for. The same goes, I think, for making sure that you, when you go to talk to an attorney or any professional, make sure they know how you like to be communicated with. Do you want a lot of detail? Do you want little detail? If they're not asking you, make sure you tell them. Because a big complaint, probably the biggest complaint I get from people when I refer to any professional is they didn't communicate with me enough. I didn't know what to expect. And part of me is like, well, did you tell them that you wanted them to communicate? But, you know, I get it, right? That's extremely important. And I always tell my clients, especially in busy times of the year. So springtime is like a crazy busy time of the year with annual IEPs. And then when COVID hit, you know, obviously it was crazy. And if I didn't respond to an email, I want you to text me because sometimes I get so bombarded with emails, I might miss something. And I want you to let me know if I did, you know, don't just go, I don't know why she's not responding. Let me know because that communication is so critical. And, you know, we can all get, you know, crazy busy times of the year and we might miss something. It's human nature, but I would say, please follow up with me. (laughs) Let me know if I missed something. Awesome. So I have your website up here. I have your email and your phone number. And are you open? Is email the best way to reach you typically? Is What's the best way? So either phone or email, but you've got the office line listed there and you'll get either myself or my office manager. For the email that's listed there, that's my office manager and she can you know try to field things faster than I can. Or if it's an emergency, she can get to me and say, hey, you've got to get back to this. You know, if people want to get to me personally, it's the Ashley at lawforparents.com. But any of those, they're going to be able to reach us and certainly we'll get back to them as quickly as we can. And then for people that don't live in Maryland, Ashley, is there a website they can go to to find special education attorneys? Sure. So I always tell parents to use COPA. That's the Council of Parents, Attorneys and Advocates. It's a great resource that is nationwide and they can find attorneys that are there. Because I haven't been out of a public school system for five years, they won't let me be an official member. They'll let me speak at their national conference, which I did in February and I'm doing a webinar for them next week. But I can't be an official member till I've been out of the public schools for five years. But you can find great attorneys listed on their website. And 
you know, across the United States. And certainly these are attorneys who have worked in the field of parents and advocates for quite some time. So I'll include a link to the COPA, C-O-P-A-A website, Find an Attorney. Ashley, this has been phenomenal. I really, really enjoyed our time. I'm sure I'll probably have you back for other topics or a deeper dive into maybe what an IP is or something. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the ABCs of Disability Planning Podcast. We invite your feedback and comments. Please feel free to leave a review wherever you are listening, and don't forget to hit like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For more information, please visit us at www.specialneedsnavigator.us.